Welcome to this edition of the Disciples Men podcast with your host Greg Alexander and Alex Ruth. Thank you for joining us as we explore the many challenges of being man of faith in these challenging times. Disciples Men is a ministry of Disciples Home Missions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. Let's listen in today's conversation. Welcome to another edition of the Disciples Men podcast. I'm Alex Ruth, your Associate Director of Disciples Men, and happy to be in conversation again today with Greg Alexander, who is our Director of Disciples Men. Greg, good to be with you in the podcast format again. Oh, same here, Alex. I've certainly missed this. Life has thrown us some curveballs and been a bit challenging for us to find time to do the podcast, but I want to let everybody know that we are working hard to get the schedule reestablished for this. We've got folks lined up and we'll get you back from vacation and a much needed vacation, I might oh, yes, but And uh, we've got our schedule set so we can begin doing these on a much more regular basis than we've done in the past. But yes, it's great to be back in your presence doing the podcast. It is. It is really good to be back and even more exciting. We've got some stuff that we'll be unveiling as we get towards General Assembly time here about a month and a half or so from the recording of this podcast. So we've got some exciting things happening later this calendar year in 2023 and looking forward to having some some greater opportunity to visit with disciples men from across our denomination here in U.S. and Canada. Absolutely. The GA, the General Assembly coming up at the end of July, is uh, consuming a lot of our energies that need to be stated. We have the men's luncheon. That's an event we have at every one of the General Assemblies and our attendance. People are signing up. We're excited about that. And we'll be sharing some information with folks there. We'll be introducing our new men's discipleship council, which is exciting. We've been working really hard behind the scenes, getting the structure and the people in place for this new way of expressing men's ministry in the life of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. We are grateful. We have a new executive committee that we're working with, and some of these folks were learning. They're, they were not people, not all of them were people known to us in the past, and so we're, we're making new friends and colleagues in this journey, which is extremely exciting. I mean, I just... I'm so excited about what we have going on and, and just can't wait to share it in a more broader way with everybody throughout the church. And then we're doing a workshop uh, right. at, at the General Assembly, and I'll let you share the title because you're carrying the water on this one for us. <laughs> we're going to be talking about the reality that we see in the world that today is not your father's men's ministry. Men's ministry has changed. Here in 2023, we've been talking about some of those changes for a while now and going to think about creative ways that we can continue to do ministry and form partnerships between multiple congregations and do things that are creative and life-giving in men's ministry. So that is on Sunday, and I think if you haven't already signed up, I think registration for that might have closed. So keep your eyes open in case the seat opens up. But I, I think everything is full for that right now. So Sunday of General Assembly Day 2 is going to be a busy day for you and I. We've got Disciples Men helping out a little bit with the build of the house that is going to be happening during General Assembly. 
So Saturday evening, there's an opportunity for disciples men, for anyone really, to be involved in the cut day. And then I know that the assembly framing of that house is supposed to happen during the worship hour on Sunday morning, followed directly by the luncheon, followed directly by the workshop. And throughout the rest of the assembly, Greg and I will be around periodically at the DHM booth in the exhibit hall. Come and visit with us there or certainly reach out. We'll set up a time to run into one another. Uh, always good to meet our fellow disciple men and uh, talk a little bit about what's happening in your lives and ministries and the ministries that you're a part of at General Assembly. It's always a good time for that. Oh, it is. It's a great time uh, for, to share and get to know each other better and share stories. And again, that helps us do our ministry when we right. can see what people are doing that we we certainly never thought about doing that. And we will use our forums to share that information. Absolutely. We have a new president of Disciples Home Missions, Dr. Chris Dorsey, and Chris is doing a, a wonderful job from at least our perspective so far. Chris has launched a number of new initiatives, a lot of them related to the technological side of our work, and that's required the staff to spend a lot of extra time getting up to speed with these new resources that we have that will be a major asset to us as we... Yes as we move forward. So again, not not to make excuses about our long silence with the podcast, but there's just been a lot going on and almost all of it, I think is good. We feel pretty good about where we are with all of this. You and I've had a couple opportunities to be together. We've been able to plan. And again, the stuff you mentioned, we got some new initiatives coming out after the General Assembly this fall. We're really excited about rolling up our sleeves and making those things happen. So yeah, stay tuned. We hope we got something to keep you engaged as we move forward. Definitely. Well, we talked as we were getting back into podcasts about what we needed to begin our season of the podcast. And the thing that has been on both of our hearts and minds has been the ongoing state of Christianity and specifically Christianity as it relates to men here in the United States and the ways in which that has been helpful and less than helpful in our assessment of the situation. And just name the topic, I think it is uh, the concept of Christian nationalism and how that impacts us and impacts the ministry of the church. It is, and it's becoming more and more prominent. You know, and let, we, it might help if we use a common definition of what Christian nationalism is. As I understand it, it's a worldview that claims that the U.S. is a Christian nation, founded right. as a Christian nation. And that the country's laws should therefore be rooted in Christian values. I think it's fair to say that this point of view has long been prominent in white evangelical circles. Yep. But lately, it seems to be spreading out beyond those circles and now becoming kind of a, a platform more of the Republican Party itself. And at least we see more and more Republican leaders embracing that language in their own platforms and in the work that they do, whether they're in the Congress or in the Senate. And so it raises the question to me as to, number one, what should we do with it? And what's its impact? What should, you know, on if Christian nationalism is allowed to sort of become the main stream idea of how Christianity gets expressed in our nation and the world? 
well, not our nation, well, not the world. What does that mean for us? And yeah. I just want to begin by saying I'm not a Christian nationalist yeah. in, no way, in no way, shape, or form. Neither. And we are not a Christian nation. We have never been a Christian nation. And even during the Revolutionary War period, when our nation was being birthed, it wasn't Christians leading the conversation. It was deists. Yes. It was people who had a general knowledge of God. I mean, everybody believed in God, essentially, and they kind of reduced God to just several key elements. Jesus was not really a part of the equation in those conversations. It was just more, there's a deity we need to acknowledge and honor, and these are some of the ways we will do that. And then went on about creating, you know, uh, the Constitution, the laws that govern the land, etc. With always that sense that there was a deity that was a distant deity that was watching over what we did. And yeah. hoping that what we did would receive the blessing of the deity. <clears throat> Christian nationalists will tell you what I just said is absolutely wrong. <laughs> you know, they're writing different history books to straighten us out. Right. But that's, that's just really not true. Yeah. And, and I would have said some of those similar things probably 30 or more years ago now, because I grew up in that white conservative evangelical side of Christianity. I was growing up in the water that said, this is a Christian nation, and we need to be making our laws in that way. As I've grown, as I think I've matured, as I have continued to learn and study and discern, that's not the position that I hold anymore. Now, that's not to say that I'm not patriotic, because I am. I'm really glad that we're in this country. I, I am proud of much of what has gone on in our history. I'm proud to be an American citizen. And I realize some of the great privileges that we have in a global sense because we live here. We do have certain rights and abilities that not everybody alive in the world even today has. But I would say that my primary allegiance lies beyond the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've grown to a point where I want to be pretty clear that Although I am patriotic, when push comes to shove, faith is going to win the day. Right. You know, right. I'm Christian before I'm an American. Yeah, and that's and that's a comparison that I've used in the past. I've, I'm sure I've used it in one of our podcasts before. The question is: Are you a Christian American or an American Christian? If you are a Christian American, that means that you use your Christianity as just a flavoring, as a spice of your identity as an American citizen. So, and so again, it's your citizenship that is the primary if you are a Christian American. If you are an American Christian, that means that you honor the heritage of your nation, but it is secondary to yes. your relationship with God through Christ. And so Christian nationalism clearly falls in the category is that we are Christian Americans, right? which means that the dominant factor, the dominant subject is your citizenship, right? and your Christianity is just an adjective to citizenship. But if you reverse it, you know, if you are an American Christian, right. then it is your citizenship that is the adjective to your primary reason for being, and that is as a follower of Christ. 
that mm-hmm. trumps everything that the nation throws at you. And so right. again, it defines your morality, your ethics. It defines how broad a circle you draw with the love of God that radiates out through you. Right. Who's in, who's out of your love circles. You know, how conditional is the love that you operate by, you know, when we talk about God's unconditional love. You know, Reverend Dr. A. Guy Waldrop was the regional minister of Kentucky, who was the one who called me to regional staff a long time ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. Guy passed away a couple weeks ago, and I can't begin to express the role he had in my life. I owe so much to Guy. And one of the things that he always said when we were studying issues, both in church and beyond, is he would say, Greg, you always have to follow the money. <laughs> and money was a metaphor, not only for money, but for power. So the question becomes, who wins and who loses by this scenario? Right. Follow the money. Who is the one who gets the prize at the end of the day? Well, Christian nationalism, because it's primarily a white movement, is designed so that the winners are the white people. Right. And the losers are everybody who is non-white. And then if you throw in patriarchy, which has historically been a part of the equation, if you are a woman, you are one who is not given the fruits of where the money lies, where the power ends up, where the money ends up. I've always appreciated that teaching from Guy. It's a great insight because it really does help you parse the truth. Mm -hmm. All right. If this is what your statement is, you know, who are the winners and who are the losers? At the end of the day, if your belief or ideology or whatever it is comes to pass. And for me, Christian nationalism has way too many losers and way right. too few winners. Right. For, for me, another way I like to think about it is what is informing, or maybe to put it differently, what rights do I have because of my faith? And Christian nationalist point of view would say that I have not only the right, but the duty to seek to be governed in such a way that reflects my understanding of Christian values, whereas I come at that differently. I want to say what's best for all people and understanding that just because something is allowed that may go against my values, my core beliefs, I just don't do that thing. If I believe that drinking alcohol is a sin, that's fine. I don't drink alcohol. I also don't think that I have the right or responsibility to t- say that no one can drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Now think about prayer in school. I mean, right. that's one of the big platforms for Christian nationalism. You and I are both prayerful people. Right. <laughs> we, we take prayer quite seriously in our ministries. Yeah. But neither one of us would embrace a platform that mandated school prayer. And so the question is, then you must not believe in prayer. Oh, I believe in prayer. I don't believe in the people leading those prayers. Yeah, And the other thing is that they're forced prayers. They're not something that you do to to foster relationship with your God. It's something that a state mandates that you do to begin whatever activity you're doing as a student in school. Even most Christian families I know 
would not want that teacher or that principal or whoever being the one responsible for introducing prayer or God to their children. Right. Because it has to be a state-based deity. Right. I mean, think about it. There's no other option. (laughs) That has not worked very well for us in the history of the world. And the thing that always baffles me as an adult is that, at least the way I read the history books, that was one of the things that our founders were trying to escape. We're trying to move away from state-sponsored religion because they were among the oppressed. They were not able to practice religion in a way that they saw fit. To turn around then and try to impose that on somebody else, that cuts against the grain. Yeah, very much so. I started first grade in 1959. And I can remember we began the day with a prayer. It was a prayer that someone had written for the teacher. I guess it was, as far as I know, it was written. It was the same prayer all the teachers prayed to begin the day. And then we would pledge allegiance to the flag. And then we'd be on our day. And I did that every day. Now, I don't remember doing that beyond, I've never studied the history of these decisions, but I don't remember doing that much beyond first or second grade. I don't have any memory of those anymore maybe third grade, but the laws changed and school prayer was ousted and right. you know we didn't do that anymore. And all I remember about that was feeling, because we, I mean, we did attend a, a church in the first few years when I was in elementary school, not long, not after that, but the first couple of years. And I just remember it feeling so strange. I just felt like a duck out of water when we were told to pray to God. It's like, I don't understand what any of this means. I mean, why? You know, is it time for recess? (laughs) So, I mean, that's kind of goofy stuff, but it is extraordinarily serious because suddenly as a pastor, suddenly the state is taking over one of my primary responsibilities. And that is to introduce God to the people I serve through prayer. And I just have some extreme issues with that, just extreme issues with that. But there's more. I mean, that's just sort of like the tip of the iceberg with that. The whole conversation for me kind of echoes the story that we're told in the Gospels of Jesus being asked whether or not is is it right to pay taxes, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar and render unto God what is God's. I think the thing that, that I read or hear when I read that story is... Jesus saying, well, everything is really God's. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this is God's. None of it is Caesar's. For me, Christian nationalism has taken a different perspective on that, saying that it is both. Again, that, it causes me some pretty deep concerns. Uh, and I think it is, it's not authentic to the way that I understand my faith. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful way to phrase it. It's not a part of our authentic understanding. Yeah. And You know, it's in some, I don't know whether all, but at least in some circles of Christian nationalism, there's the belief that the United States is God's preferred nation. And again, if you follow the money, what does that mean? If we are the preferred nation, who are the other people? What are the other nations? Subservient. I mean, lesser than. And if if white people are, are God's preferred group of people, what does that mean for people of color? And if men are the preferred sex, the preferred gender what does that of mean? God, yeah. then what does that mean for women? 
And again, this is that's the follow the money argument is right. who wins and who loses when we use faith language to justify state policy. And that's the scary part. And then I, I just will add one more part of this. And I, I don't know that I have connected this in in the articles I've read, but with but I'm sure they're connected. And that is this whole move towards charter schools. Mm-hmm. Charter schools allow you to indoctrinate the students with a certain belief or understanding. It can be a Christian belief. It can be whatever, that you have the right through that charter to teach whatever you want to teach beyond certain basic educational things that I guess there's still some requirement for that. If you change the public system, which has many flaws, if you change the public system to a charter system, Now what you've done is that you've given the mandate to create Christian nationalists through those charter schools. Now we teach the nation, the United States is the preferred nation of God, that white men are the preferred, you know, gender and race. And so starting very early at a very young age of indoctrinating children with these kinds of beliefs. In Kentucky, it was reported on news last night. This is the 14th of June that we're recording this. It was reported in the news last night that KKK flyers are starting to appear throughout different parts of our area here. I'm in the greater Lexington area. Wow. Yeah. You don't think these aren't connected? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Like we've been talking about, it's an issue of power and control. Can we hold our faith openly enough and gently enough to let the spirit fly where the spirit will? Or do we keep the dove of the spirit grasped firmly by its feet so that it may never leave our hand? There's a draw towards that certainty. And I would love to be able to boldly proclaim, this is the absolute answer. I know this is the only right way that this happens. But the world doesn't really work in that way. No. no. The world is a lot more nuanced. There's a lot more interaction. Reality is not that clean, clear, and cut and dried. You know, from we've talked about this, I think, many times in the past. From a, a strictly male perspective, we have gone, in my lifetime, from the early 50s, we've gone from a time in which white males had all the power, almost all the power in our nation. That was under the auspices of the umbrella of patriarchy. And then over time, with the 60s, just a quick dash through history again, you know, civil rights challenged the white supremacy. And so that began to cause the white men of power to begin to question what was held as a new threat to their identity. With equal rights for women, That, too, became a question mark that challenged that sense of identity that once was a privileged place. And so now, all of a sudden, I've lost my my authority gender-based, and I've lost my authority race-based. And what does that mean for me and who I am in the world? We've talked in the past what happened in boardrooms and church boardrooms is that the all-male decision-makers of our boards at one point in time knew the rules of engagement. What happened when the first woman sat in the room? Do we treat her like mom? 
our spouse, how do I respond to this person? Because I don't know how to engage this person beyond role. And we didn't teach anybody how to do that. We didn't teach men how to do that. And then what happened when the first African-American person was sitting in the boardroom? I don't know how to engage this person, not in the historic role that they've occupied. So what do we do? And in the church, what happened is the men said, I don't need this anymore. And they went to the golf course on Sunday mornings or put their fishing pole in hand and went fishing or slept in and worked on the New York Times crossword puzzle. And that's what happened to the church when these threats to our identity, to the white male identity, began to emerge. And again, these challenges to that you and I wholeheartedly embrace because we've allowed to see that that didn't reduce or take away anything from me. What it did is it opened me up to be much greater than I ever was. It removed those barriers, those social barriers to who I was and allowed me to begin to experience life in a much more full, much richer way than what we ever could experience before. And, you know, in this not power over, but this shared power realm in which we keep trying to grow into, I believe was the Jesus way. I believe Jesus came to talk about shared power, sharing God's power. And that power of God was love. To share the love power of God with one and all equally, unconditionally was the message. And so... We live in a world in which we can't overcome the threat. Right. That's what's happened with the rise of Christian nationalism is we now have mostly men, mostly white men, but not exclusively, who are saying, you took everything away from me. I don't know who I am. And so it's time that we fight and get it back and come hell or high water. We don't care who gets hurt. We're going to take back what was rightfully ours. Well, as you and I both know, that was never rightfully theirs. (laughs) And so that's what creates the false narrative around this. And so our work, the work you and I have done together for the last four years now, has been to help men understand that there is a beautiful way, just an extraordinarily beautiful way of understanding what it means to be a mature male to to embrace the mature masculinity as God intended it to be and modeled for us through Jesus. It's not based on my gender or my race or my economic status. It's based on my willingness to embrace the diversity of the world that God created. Right. And in that, I find my true self. And it is wonderful, beautiful, spiritually uplifting and engaging, And yet we keep wanting to run and hide back under those old rocks that we think it's like pulling the blankets up over us when the boogeyman comes. We're trying to find some way to preserve and protect an identity that has long outlived its usefulness, but honestly was never ours in the beginning. Right. I mean, that was something we falsely claimed at a much earlier time. And to wrap that in God language or Jesus language as to justify us trying to turn the tide back. Well, I have a lot of names for it, but I'll (laughs) be kind. We'll say at least that it is dangerous uh, to do that. When my daughter was in high school, she was part of a dance team. And so part of helping fund her competitive dance was fundraising. And we worked concession stands at a local college. And so everybody there, because 
this wasn't in the town that I lived, worked, and was pastor in. When I was there in that larger community nearby, nobody knew me as Pastor Alex. They knew me as Kaya's dad. And mm -hmm. so inevitably, when we get to that conversation of what do you do for a living, and I would say that I'm a pastor, that conversation always changed, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm constrained by the role of pastor and what they what the other person thinks that must mean. At least the jokes and the language changed. Yeah, yeah. That's the first thing. If you didn't become an outright pariah. Right. At least they would adapt their language and sense of humor to meet my sensibilities or whatever. Yeah. What was really freeing was getting past that role to enabling those folks to then see me again as a person. I think that's a lot of what goes into this kind of discussion that we're having is, yes, what we do matters. It does make a difference. It does mm -hmm. inform some things. But who we are at our core is more important. And I think for you and I, we would want to define that as we are followers of the, the living God who we know best through Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. Right. We are children of the divine. We are siblings of Christ. We are all these things, and that is good, but that's where our definition of who we are needs to be, not on what we do, because those things change. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. it can change and shift rapidly and not under our own power. Right. We find that identity as followers of Christ not to be limiting in any way. Yeah. Liberating. Yeah, it's liberating. Some people see that, oh, I can't believe, well, you can't do this or you can't do that or whatever. And the truth is, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I've reframed. It causes me to reframe some of that stuff. I mean, I'm still a sports enthusiast. My life doesn't rise and fall with my team winning or losing, but it's certainly a form of entertainment I embrace. I'm not a drinker. I've enjoyed that in the past. It's not something that I do anymore. And I do not condemn friends or colleagues, ministry colleagues who enjoy a glass of wine or a beer. Or, I mean, live in Kentucky or a shot of bourbon. I mean, that's part of the culture. It's yeah. just not my way. But right. I don't I don't use it as a tool for judgment of somebody else. And I certainly don't say if you're going to be a minister, then you got to look and act like me. Right. You know, this is between you and God. And that's the liberating factor. You are a person who has a radically different set of gifts and graces than what I enjoy. And it's between you and God to determine what enhances the use of those gifts and graces and what inhibits the use of those gifts and graces. And that's part of the faith journey is understanding what I need to focus on that sets those gifts and graces free to the world and to begin to eliminate those things that hinder or limit my ability to express those gifts and graces in the world. And you and I would both say that patriarchy, racism, sexism, homophobia are things that we find severely limit. Yes our ability to utilize our gifts and graces in the world. And I would say 
kind of in a more blanket statement, it's been my experience that those things limit the gifts and graces of everybody who embraces them or who is impacted by those who embrace those ideas. And uh, so I have never been anything but set free in my love of God because what I'm set free to be is me, not what you define me, not what the culture defines me, not what even Nora defines me. I'm set free to be the me that God created me to be. And in return, I get to experience the fullness of other people's lives around me. Yeah. And that forms a pretty cool tapestry, given the chance. It does. That creates something just absolutely beautiful for the world. And it is a reflection of God. Yeah. And that getting carried away here maybe a little bit. To me, that's what it's all about. And to think that somehow that God believes that if you're not an American, you're somehow not worthy, or if you're not a white male, you're somehow not worthy, or if you don't drive a Mercedes and live in a gated community, that somehow you're not worthy. How could you ever draw that conclusion from any study of the Bible, any right. legitimate study of the Bible? It's not there. Right. It's an add-on. It's not there. Uh, for me, the gospel has always been extraordinarily liberating, and uh, and I know that's true for you too, Alex. We circle back and think about for whom is that liberating, and if it's not liberating for all people, then we need to go back and do some rereading and rethinking. Yeah, uh, is my position. I, that's what I do uh, when I come across one of my beliefs that I find is limiting somebody else or limiting myself. Then it's time to go back and do some serious evaluation and study. And that's part of the beauty of all the curriculum that you and I have worked to create on the Jesus Way materials, is that it is all intended to bring us into conversation with other people as we find out more about who God is calling each of us to be. Yeah. Because that's an ongoing journey. Yeah. Um, I would define or describe the person God is calling me to be differently today than I would two years ago or three years ago, or certainly 20 years ago. Yep. God is continually at work in all of our lives, I believe. And that unveiling is best done in community. This isn't a solo journey. This is something that we do together. And that's one of the particular one of the real core reasons why we wrote the curriculum the way it is written to be experienced in that community in a safe space where we can walk with one another as we discern our calling uh, right who God is calling us to be yeah absolutely beautifully stated that's what we've done and making the journey with other men emboldens us to carry that out to live out the person God's calling us to be and it holds us accountable in that journey with each other. Yep. And that's part of the beauty of what we've done. We've said many times, it's not prescriptive. No. We're not telling anybody what a 21st century man ought to look like. <laughs> what we're saying is that God's inviting you on a journey to make that discovery yourself in the company of other men. Yes. And, and that's where its power lies. The transformative power lies is in that. And maybe we've, been a part of this so much. We've breathed this air for so long. Maybe it's hard for us to talk about anything else. It is the everything else that makes our journey of faith worthwhile. Yeah. And we want other people to embrace it. Yeah. Uh, my little church I serve, they, you know, it's, it's funny because I've gotten to the point where 
I use the phrase the gospel according to Greg <laughs> uh, when, when I'm trying to make a point. And they know that when I use that language, what I'm saying is, is I'm not expecting you to buy this. What I'm telling you is, is that this is one way that faith has found expression. Right. And what I'm encouraging you to do is say, so what, how should faith find a similar expression in me? And so again, I'm not trying to prescribe for anyone in my church how to be faithful. What I'm saying is these are some of the fruits of faith I've been able to enjoy and that I have observed being enjoyed by others. So right. let's just explore those and see if any of these become avenues for you to become a much more fruitful and faithful Christian. And they came out of a time in which they were used to people telling them what it meant to be a Christian. And they've now discovered how just horribly restrictive and honestly damaging that was to their own faithfulness. And again, they know it's not a matter of me not having firm convictions, but they're my convictions. And let me show you where my convictions came from and see what convictions you can draw from your engagement of the text or whatever. And we have created those same concepts in the Jesus way. Mm -hmm. there's no prescribed right or wrong this is between you and your god and if you come out in a radically different place than i do after we've made this journey together praise be to god i don't have to salute it i mean that's not the point right the point is that i've asked you to do this work of discernment with me and you did yeah. and god led you in a different place than where i am now what are you going to do with it yeah how, how, who's it going to bless yeah, and who's, how who's it not going to bless? How's it going? How are we going to celebrate where we both end up? Yeah, in our different spots. How do we celebrate that? Because the God that I'm coming to know and believe in is a heck of a lot bigger than one size fits all. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> much more multifaceted, much bigger God than that. Oh. And I, I have no desire or compunction or anything to limit God anymore. I might have at an earlier stage in my life at a different part of my walk. Not anymore. I would also add or limit yourself. Yes. In that understanding of God and how that gets expressed in you. And yeah, yeah we're both different people than when we started this journey four years ago. Oh, yeah. We have, we have learned from each other. We have challenged each other in some key ways. We're not the same, but we have found common ground in our unique journeys. Yes. And that's all we ask is that we continue to find common ground with each other in the unique communities that people make through the Jesus way or in any other kind of ministry that we participate in with the larger church. And that's all we ask. And taking us back to our topic, we both believe that Christian nationalism is counter to that belief. Yep. It reinstitutes fences and borders and restricts the freedoms uh, that we have found to be so liberating and important in our journey of faith as followers of Jesus Christ. For me, that's the primary takeaway. There are a lot of nuances to it. A lot of people interpret it different ways. But the language itself says that a certain group of people are putting limitations on who and what other people can be. Yeah. And in our estimation, that violates the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it does. So what I encourage you all to do is 
Think about those stories in your life. Where has God been at work in your life and to open you up to new ways of being? Where is God working in your heart and in your mind? And share those stories with us. If you're coming to General Assembly, find Greg or I and, and look us up. Send us an email. We'll have all sorts of information on that. You can find it through the, the podcast websites as well. We'd love to hear from you, to hear where God is at work in your life so that we can celebrate that with you. And we can share that with our other disciples, men who are on a similar journey. And maybe we can all bolster one another and lift one another up by doing that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, Greg, good to see you again in this podcast format. Thank you for your time and always good to be able to visit with you. Same here, Alex. Thank you so much. And I will see you in Louisville in about a month. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Everybody, thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Disciples Men Podcast. Bye, everybody. Our special thanks to our good friend, the Reverend Dr. Dean Phelps, for providing the special music of this podcast. You can discover more of Dean's music at deanphelpsmusic.com. And you can learn more about the ministry of Disciples Men on Facebook and through discipleshomemissions.org.